Hi, welcome to the official podcast of the WCD. That's the World Congress of Dermatology, which will be held next in Singapore in July 2023. I'm Dr. Etienne Wang from the National Skin Centre of Singapore, and I will be your host for this podcast. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And in this podcast, I speak to dermatologists and skin researchers from all over the world to talk about all things dermatology. And now my co-host, Ellie, is back with a derm topic for discussion. Hi, Ellie. What do you have for us today? Hi, Tian. Um, today, I thought we could talk about patient and public involvement research because it's something that I've been reading a little bit more about and have been seeing a little bit more in journals as well. Hmm. Okay, so how do you think are the different ways that patient and the public can get involved in research? I mean, you know, typically our research clinical research are on patients, right? But for this idea of PPI, it's about having patients as part of the study team and conducting research with them. And this can be in various stages. So as early on in the planning and development of the research question, if you have patients involved, it may help develop questions that are of greater priority to patients. And that increases the chance that your research will result in something that's clinically impactful and meaningful. And then also in designing of the study methodology and your research materials, having patients involved and looking through can help to also ensure that what you have is understandable, um, that the recruitment protocol is not too inconvenient, or for clinical trials that the risk-benefit ratio is something that's acceptable to patients. And also sometimes patients do help with recruitment of other participants, so that helps to boost your study recruitment. This is very much akin to our patient-centered clinic, clinical dermatology, but we're moving it into the research space as well. Yeah, correct. I think, you know, having patients involved in your research really helps to ensure that what you develop is patient-centric and not just based on what researchers think it's important or what we think it's interesting. Hmm. Have you dabbled in this yourself? Um, a little bit. I want to do a bit more, but um, what I've had so far is, you know, our previous study, when we looked at discordant symptom uh, grading between patients and physicians, and after we interviewed patients and physicians, we drew up a framework to explain why patients and physicians come to have different perceptions of the same severity. And we actually showed this model to a few of our patients, and they, some of them really provided very good insightful comments uh, over and above what we had previously obtained. And the comments from the patients helped us to rework our model and develop something that was a bit more realistic and real. Um, Another previous study that we did on steroid phobia and also on steroid addiction and withdrawal, this stage we involved patients a little bit later when we showed our manuscript draft to some patients. And the reason being steroid addiction and withdrawal is a very controversial topic and many patients have had poor experiences with dermatologists who felt that they were dismissive of their beliefs. So we wanted to see whether patients first, if they could even understand what we were writing and whether they felt what we wrote was respectful towards the community of patients who, who subscribe to this belief. Mm. Wow, that is, that is very encouraging to see that patients are willing to be more involved. So I think you mentioned earlier that patients being on the study team, I actually have some experience when I was back doing my PhD that alopecia areata research, the patients are very much involved, okay, from the patient societies and organizations there. So um, in Singapore, it's not very much a huge thing about patient organizations. Do you think that plays a role in this as well? Yeah, for sure. I realized that, I don't know whether it's like, you know, a Singaporean or Asian thing, but people tend not to be so open in joining social uh, online forum groups. They're not so participative, I feel, as some of the Western countries. 
Um, do, do, is that something that you feel as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, maybe maybe for medical problems, they're not. But in, in the other spheres, they might be quite vocal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, that's true as well. So, I mean, definitely I'm hoping to involve more patients in my future research. Um, it's something that I'm still, you know, learning from. And I think it's very exciting. It's something that, you know, when I look at the research field, I think many researchers are moving towards having greater patient involvement in the planning and execution phase. When you brought this topic up to me, I was trying to think of other examples as well. And one example that I can think of is actually big data. Do you think patients or crowdsourcing, crowdsourcing your analysis of big data is something that also falls under this umbrella? The examples that I've seen, uh, for example, in astronomy or physics, where they have huge, massive data sets, and then you have um, people who are interested help on the data, and you know, in in this very decentralized manner. Hmm. Oh, that, that, that is an interesting thought. I didn't think about that. But yeah, surely that'll be interesting, especially because a lot of these domains or databases are publicly available. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so I think it's quite a wide topic, actually. And I think it's quite an interesting way to expand our involvement in patients in research in Singapore and around the world. Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, Ali. That was, that was food for thought. And I thank, thank you again you. for bringing that to us. Thank you. See you okay, soon. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> And now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Vanjie Handok from the Philippines. She was the first woman president of the International Society of Dermatology and a practicing dermatologist in Philippines now. Welcome, Vanjie, to the podcast. Hi, Tim. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, thank you so much for making time today. Um, so, you were the first woman president of the International Society of Dermatology. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? Oh, you know, I couldn't believe I was given the opportunity to be the 15th ISD president and pride of my family and country, considering I'm the first woman to be at the helm of a prestigious organization. The added responsibility of running a society will definitely take additional time, probably more sleepless nights, considering that at the same time then, I was the chair of the Department of Dermatology of Asian Hospital and Medical Center. And you know what? I clearly remember ambivalent feelings of anxiety and joy enveloped me as I was elected president in India that was it was so I was thinking was the moment real as I stood still on stage being watched and cheered by colleagues and friends diverse thoughts crossed my mind what if I don't deliver the what ifs the how to the what's next kept nagging me yet <laughs> I needed to smile and give them the face that says, I can do it, we will do it together. <laughs> wow. Right. Oh, what do you think your greatest achievement during your tenure was? I think the best thing that I've done for the society was being able to promote the society because as I go to other parts of the world, to many countries, to travel and deliver lectures, I was uh, able to invite people to join the International Society of Dermatology. Many of the committees were, were done so nicely, the constitution and bylaws were, we were able to streamline everything. So that was, I think, the biggest contribution I had. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think I was charming enough to invite people to join ISD. So the membership wow. grew up at that time. Pandemic time, I think not so bad, uh, not so bad considering people are not really working so hard this time. But uh, during my term, the membership numbers increased. 
Mm. Um, looking at the history of the ISD, it used to be known as the International Society of Tropical Dermatology, is that right? Right, that's correct. You are also involved in a lot of tropical medicine. What's that like in the Philippines? Oh, in the Philippines, uh, I'm connected with the dermatology department of the Research Institute for Tropical Diseases. So, uh, will you be interested if I tell you something about our residency training program? Please do. Uh, okay, so we have 13 accredited institutions in the Philippines for residency training. So the RITM, the Research Institute for Tropical Medicine, is one of those accredited institutions. We have a total of 21 residents for a three-year training program. Uh, unfortunately, the number of cases seen in teleconsults during the pandemic dropped. It's still better, of course, if the patients are seen face-to-face. So we still see lots of Hansen's, a few cutaneous TB, and top consults will be acne, seborrheic dermatitis, psoriasis, contact derms. So these are figures, if you will be interested. In 2019, we see around 32,000 patients a year, but then um, last year, it dropped to about 13,000 or so. So, wow. yeah, Sorry, because and this is in your institution at the moment? Or yes, is this, only yeah. at RITM. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think wow. the other institutions are having the same, you know, the same problem, the same mm-hmm. figures. And in the Philippines, um, do you think there's a gender bias in dermatology in your country? <laughs> um, in the Philippines, we are about 1,275 members of the Philippine Dermatological Society. And don't laugh, we have uh, 97% of the members being women. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's what I've heard. It's, it's amazing <laughs> being a complete, almost completely woman-led specialty in the Philippines. Right, women power. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> what, what's that like? I mean, it's, uh, the, the tables are turned. So what do the men think? <laughs> No, they they think we're good. Yeah, <laughs> but we, we also all think, think they're good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but but what what do you think about you know the rest of the world where you know in America it's still probably more men than women and mo- most men. most other places in the world too. Right, especially in India, <laughs> where yeah, they have yeah. about six thousand members or more mm-hmm. in America. But now in America, my friends say that now more women are applying yeah, for residency. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, getting more and more women. Another issue that you seem to be very involved in is skin lightening. And I think skin lightening products are still quite rampant in the Philippines. What do you think are some of the issues that are still unresolved in this topic? You are very correct there when you say so. The Food and Drug Administration of the Philippines, through the help of our mother society, were giving advisories on which are the only approved products for skin lightening. So the Philippine Dermatological Society, through webinars and television guestings, are also spreading the good and the bad effects of improper skin whitening. I don't know why people want to become white when brown is really good. You know, brown skin is perfect. Unfortunately, we've we've been conditioned by media to think that, you know, the white, beautiful white blonde hair, that's the perfect thing. So that's why everyone wants to change themselves. Actually, the patients have to be educated. So every time there's a patient asking for a whitening agent, I have to ask them why. They feel that they, they, if they are a little bit on the whiter side, they have uh, you know, the social strata, they, they look yeah, better. Yeah. 
And unfortunately, they probably have a point because, you know, research has shown that people with whiter skin get more job prospects, they get better scores on interviews, right. stuff like that. Yeah, and it's right. something that's quite inbuilt into our society. So it's quite difficult because we get those patients as well. It's quite difficult to tell the patients, no, don't bother about this because it doesn't mean anything. But they go out into the world and they are faced <laughs> with, right, right. with, you, a, with the reality. Correct. Yes, You yeah. are correct. So what we have to do is uh, really educate the people and tell them which are the better hyperpigmenting agents. Sometimes, mm. have you heard of magic cream? Uh, we, tell that, us about that. Yeah, it contains, unfortunately, mercury and mm -hmm. clobetasol, oh. imagine. So we see people with stria, especially if they put it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, on the armpits and groins. Ah, very disfiguring stria. Stria, really very difficult to take. Also in the Philippines, there's quite a lot of use of glutathione. And I see one of your papers, you actually use sublingual uh, lozenge, lo lozenge glutathione. Can right. you tell us more about glutathione? Because, you know, um, from outside the Philippines, it seems like quite an interesting way of treating hyperpigmentation. Right. Actually, the glutathione that I study is for general hypopigmenting agent, not for melasma, okay? Because mm -hmm. usually mm -hmm. people will ask, will it take away my melasma or my PIH on the face? So what we studied, it was only for eight weeks. And I think if we go on uh, doing it, it's a little bit expensive. I think it will work because the study showed that it is safe and effective. There was only one uh, problem uh, because one said there's a little bit of a sour taste because mm -hmm. of the grapefruit. So. There are mechanisms of actions which will say that it is really good uh, considering that it can be a mild tyrosinase inhibitor, the switching from the uh, eumelanin to pheomelanin, etc., etc. I think that's the reason why WCD invited me to be in the debate <laughs> for the controversy on glutathione. Mm -hmm. But yeah. let, let's see, let's see. Let's see. Yeah. I think it's no, going yep. to be a very... It's a watch this space. I, 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 I don't think we, we can say one thing is right, one thing is wrong, but right. I think we should be open to debate for all these things. Yes, yes. And, and just to wrap up, uh, have you ever been to Singapore? Oh, many times. Singapore oh. is one of my favorite destinations. The clean environment, the disciplined people, the inviting tours and shops are just some of the reasons for coming back, right? And the yes. World Congress in July next year is a great opportunity to learn, meet friends, and to shop. <laughs> <laughs> I love the dresses in Singapore. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Well, what's your favorite place to shop in Singapore? Uh, anywhere there where there are nice dresses. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and the food? Any memories of the food in Singapore? Uh, I love it. I lo you know, I eat anything, everything except slimy vegetables. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, we'll make sure there are no slimy vegetables in the menu at the WCD. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank True. you so much, Vanji, for thank making time you. today for speaking with us. Thank you. See you soon. Yes, uh, and, I, and I definitely will see you soon in uh, WCD. Singapore is opening up, so I uh -huh. think um, conventions and meetings and everything are going to start coming back. And hopefully by then we'll be maskless like, the re like America and London right now. And right. we can uh, see each other's actually, faces. Actually, the family is already <laughs> prepared to come with me to Singapore in the July. The family? How, how big is the family? Uh, we're huh? seven, including my seven. Wow. grandchild. <laughs> wow, okay, that's going to be amazing. My daughter-in-law, yeah. Okay, okay, good, good, good. So I hope to see you soon.
Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you so much, okay. Angie. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the official podcast of the WCD. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram at WCD Singapore, and check out the WCD website, wcd2023singapore.org for more updates and content on the WCD. At that website, you can find links to register for the WCD and submit your abstracts for next year's WCD. And until next time, stay safe and use sunblock.